22 and on, you want to start a fight, start talking about politics, religion, or Ephesians 5, 22 and following. Today's passage is difficult to swallow for a 21st century person. But it's even difficult to, for the 21st century churchgoer to swallow this passage. Our first reaction might be simply, Paul is wrong. Must be a chauvinist. Or we might want to help Paul out and say, Paul, what, what Paul really meant was, and we fill in the blank. Or we might go, well, Paul, that was for your day, but it's not for our day. But may I challenge each of us to allow today's text to speak. Don't seek to change it or ignore it. Allow God's Word to sting us, to challenge us, to correct us, not simply to affirm us. If you're in a relationship with somebody, um, as much as we might think it would be nice for Lynn always to agree with everything I say, that wouldn't be much of a relationship. I wouldn't be changed. I wouldn't be shaped. And it's the same in a relationship with our God. There are times when we're going to be reading the text and we're just going to be, our heart is going to be moved and we're going to go, oh, thank you, Lord. But there are other times we're going to be opening up the text and the Lord is going to say something to us that just stings, it hurts, it, it doesn't make sense. And the question is, will we trust him? Will we listen to him or will we obey him? And I think, today's text does that. I think it did that in the first century. Continues to do that today. Before we dive into Ephesians, I, I want to do something I did a few weeks back, and I want to take a, I want to just jump into this grand story called the Scriptures, and I want to jump in back in Jeremiah. I've been reading Jeremiah the last several weeks in my, in my devotional life, and let me just read a couple of verses. Jeremiah chapter 3, he's talking to a very religious people. These are people that are, are consistent in going to the temple and doing sacrifices and, uh, and performing their religious duties as Jews. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 25. We read these words. We have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers, from our youth even to this day, and we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. And so Jeremiah is saying, we have sinned, and from our youth, from the time that, all the way back to Abraham, but certainly back to Moses, we've always disobeyed him. Jeremiah, a few chapters later, chapter 22 and verse 21, listen to these words. I spoke to you in your prosperity, but you said, I will not listen. This has been your way from your youth, that you have not obeyed my voice. Now, I think it's important for us to understand that this is Jeremiah speaking to a religious people. 
if this was the church, they would have been faithful churchgoers. They probably were cutting a check and putting it in the offering plate. They were doing all their religious duties. But Jeremiah just has scathing rebuke against them because from their youth, they did not obey the Lord. In light of that, there was great judgment, but there was also this promise of a future, of a new covenant. And Jeremiah is the first one that actually gives us a hint of this. Jeremiah 31, verse 33. Well, verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. I'll put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. He's going to take his law, and he's going to write it on their hearts. Now, Jeremiah is preaching this in Jerusalem before they are scattered to Babylon. But while he's doing this in Jerusalem, there are some in Babylon, including a great prophet Ezekiel. And Ezekiel says something very, a contemporary of Jeremiah says something very similar in Ezekiel chapter 36. He promises of a new covenant. And in that case, he says it this, he says it this way. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. And I read this and here's the people that had been disobedient. They've been going through the motions but they had been disobedient. And God says, there's going to be a time, a new covenant coming, when I will send my spirit and I'll put my law in your, in your heart. I'll write it on your heart. I'll put my spirit within you so you can obey me. You go, come on, Elroy, are you just wasting time so we don't have to get to Ephesians? No, hang with me, hang with me. Let's move to Ephesians. Apostle Paul's in where? Prison. And he doesn't start off saying, please, would you pray that I can get out of prison? He doesn't do that. The Apostle Paul is in prison, and he begins by praising God for every spiritual blessing that is his, that is ours, in the heavenly places for those who are in Christ, those who are connected to Christ. And he lists these blessings, and he's, he's praising God not complaining. And then he begins to pray, unselfishly begins to pray for others. And his prayer is that their eyes would be able, the eyes of their heart would be able to see, understand the blessings that are ours in Christ. He said, I want you to see them. I want you to understand them. I want you to know what's yours in Jesus. That's really what he's doing. He's so 
other-oriented. The Apostle Paul then continues in, in chapter 2, and he says, Be, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead. Literally having walking dead, he talks about, but really having no ability to to see the spiritual blessings, no ability to know Christ, no ability to see what, what is of such importance. And then in verse 4, it says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. He's saying God did something. God caused us to be born again. God rescued us. God saved us. God chose us. God, God did what He didn't have to do. And He made us alive. We could smell again. We could see again. We could taste again. And all of that, why? Because of His grace. Not because of our works. He makes it abundantly clear. It's through faith, it's through trusting in Him, in what Jesus has done. And then he moves on and he talks about how we are now one in Christ. And then the, the dividing wall of hostility, the Jew and the Gentile are no longer separate. They're, they're one flesh, they're one body. Those who are, are, are believers in this Jesus are now one. Galatians chapter 3, 28. He expands that. It's not just Jew and Gentile, but he says it's slave and free and male and female. One. Those words would have been scandalous in the first century. A male and female, one. Jew and Gentile, one. Slave and free. Apostle Paul then continues and says, in light of all of this, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to take off that old flesh. That, and, and it's a constant thing. We're constantly taking off what is not of this new reality that is ours. We're to take those clothes off and we're to put on new clothes. And it's a constant, ongoing thing. And he begins to articulate what that looks like. How we're to behave to one another. How we're to speak. How we're to think and desire. We touched on a lot of that over the last little while. But then in Matthew, I mean, sorry, in Ephesians chapter five, verse eighteen, he speaks to this church and he says, "But be filled with the Spirit." Remember the promise in Ezekiel of the new covenant that God would give us His Spirit so we could obey the law. You know, the, the, the whole Israelite people, they, they could not and they would not obey the, of the Old Testament law. There was going to come a time when He would put His Spirit in us so that we could and we would obey the law. To the Ephesians, He says, be filled with the Spirit. And then He begins to unpack some things that are very difficult to understand and very difficult, impossible in my mind, to do unless there's gas in the car. You might have the nicest vehicle on the planet, 
And if there's no fuel in the tank, no matter how nice you are to it or how much you talk to it or how much, whatever you do to it, that thing is not going to go. And what the Apostle Paul is saying that in, in verses 22 and, and following about husbands and wives and what he says about children and parents, Josh, not children and husbands. I'm glad you caught that. And, 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 and what, what he says about slaves and owners, these things are impossible to do unless the Spirit of God is within us. In fact, these things are impossible for us to embrace unless our eyes are open to the realities of what Jesus has done. Because the Apostle Paul is going to de de define the husband-wife relationship through the lens of what Jesus Christ has done. And if we don't grasp what Jesus Christ has done, we cannot appreciate what he tells us to do in Ephesians 5. So with that way too long background, let's dive into the text. Verse 21 says, Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, out of an awe of who Christ is and what Christ has done, we're called to submit to one another. That word submit is a military word. It means to place ourselves under. Now, there's a willingness and a voluntary aspect to this, but that's what we're called to do. It has the idea of obeying. And we live in a culture where we don't like to obey any external force or authority. Even in the church, we struggle with that because we speak of our freedom. Apostle Paul is going to attack that head on. And now he's going to give us some examples in the context of the home of how or what this submission ought to look like. And he gives us three pictures, I think three pictures in the home, because I understand that the slave and the servant happen in the context of the household. And we will deal with the slave issue eventually, okay? But he begins with the wives and the husbands. Because I believe that's the heart of the family. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Hmm. How is Elroy to submit to the Lord? How is my wife Lynn supposed to submit to the Lord? We recognize what he's done. He gave his life so that I might have life. And, and, and as a result, I'm supposed to, I'm called, and I've been, been in, in, in Ephesians, I'm being called to obey him in everything. Out of an incredible love for him and a gratitude for him and, and a thankfulness, like just like, Lord, you've done this. I'm in awe of what you've done. And Father, I'm going to submit to you because look what you've done for me. I was dead and now I'm alive. I had no hope and now I have hope. 
our family wrestles with, 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 with cancer and not knowing what the future is, but because of Jesus, we know there is a, a future for eternity. Thank you, Lord, I have that. And in light of that, I, I, what, what ought I to do? How ought I to live? Help me to submit to you. And very strongly, the Apostle Paul says that is the way the wives are to submit to their own husbands. Now, hang with me before you shut the, the phone off or hang, you know, hang up the phone. The text is going to deal with the men really soon. But we need to start where P the Apostle Paul starts. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Remember back in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22? And he, God, put all things under his, Jesus' feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church. Jesus is the authority. He's the master. And in some way, the husband is the authority, the master. Verse 24. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. That's strong. That's, that's strong. Let that sit there, though. Too often we read the text and we think we are the authority over the text, and we don't allow the text to speak to us. So we get to a section that we don't like, and we go, ah, this has got to mean this. But let the text tell you what the text is saying. Now, Obviously, in everything cannot mean that, that the husband can have the authority to tell the wife to do what is contrary to what God, the authority of overall, has told us. My ultimate submission, and, and our ultimate submission, is to none other than God himself. And yet, the language is very strong. So wives should submit in everything to their own husbands. Now the wife is not so called to submit to all the other males, it's to her own husband. I'm just going to let that sit there and begin to stir in your soul. Verse 25, husbands love your wives. Well, that's easy, right? As Christ loved the church. did Christ love the church? Paul's been talking about it for weeks, it seems like, because that's how long it's been taking us to get through, but he died. He, he sent his, his son to give his life. He was brutally murdered and butchered on a cross. That is how Elroy is called to, to love his wife. Now, he, he goes in, in greater detail. And gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. Now, this is Jesus talking to the church, but that's what God is doing in us, right? He's changing us. He's shaping us so that we're more and more like him. 
so that at some point, some point down the road, after we cross that great river Jordan, at some point down the road, he might present us to the Father in perfectly pure robes. He has our best interests at heart. He goes on. So that the, 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 the church is into himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that might be holy and without blemish. That's what Christ has done, is doing, and will do for his body, for his bride, because he loves us. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Not that long ago, I think it was two, three years ago, I had to get down on my knee and apologize to my beautiful bride because I was confronted with what the text had said, that my dear wife was made for the glory of God wasn't made simply for my pleasure. And I knew that up here, but in practice, I don't think I functioned that way. And I apologized to her. And I knew that my apology was necessary because I kn- saw the tears running down her face. You see, I, I, I need the Spirit of God to love Lynn as Christ loved the church. I, I can't do this without his spirit. I need gas in the tank. I, I'm, I'm like the, the Israelites who would not and could not keep the law. I read this and I go, I don't do it. Forgive me, Father, and help me to grow in it. Help me to take off the old clothes like this impatience. Take that off and, and put on the clothing of patience so I can love my wife. Did, did, you, did you notice that she might be holy and without blemish in the same way. He who loves his wife loves himself because, remember, we're one flesh. This is radical thinking. In that culture, for, for male and female to be seen as one, to be seen as equal, to be seen on the same terms, that was radical. That would have rubbed the first century horribly wrong. And I'm called to nourish and to cherish Lynn. I'm called to to see what what will cause her to flourish and what will help her take the next step and what will help her succeed. And and, and I'm supposed to basically humble myself and to love her in such a way, putting her first, putting her needs. Do Do you get the picture? Lynn is called to submit to such a husband. Oh, yeah, she's called to submit. doesn't say if I, even when I don't love, she's still called to submit. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He's quoting what God had done in, the, in, in, in Genesis already. And he says, but the mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And the Apostle Paul is talking about husband and wife, and he's talking about Christ and the church, and they're talking about husband and wife, and he's talking about Christ and the church, and you're going, Paul, which one are you talking about? And that's the that's point. When the world looks at Elroy and Lynn, 
The idea is that they, they see me and they glance past us and they go, oh, I see Jesus, I see God the Father, and I see, I see Christ treating the church in this manner. But quite frankly, that doesn't always happen. Too often my kids have, have, have seen the way I have treated Lynn or Lynn has treated me, but usually the other way. And they, there's no, there, there would have been no resemblance to Christ in the church. And by God's grace, God has helped us continually take off the old clothes and put on the new clothes. That's a picture that he calls us to. It's meant to sting. It's meant to cause us to look in the mirror and go, what ought we to change? Now, this, this submission doesn't just stay in the context of husband and wife. The reality is I'm submitting all the time. Uh, our, our task force and, and your leaders from Com Calgary Community Reform Church both got together, what was it, on a Wednesday, and, uh, and I said, here's my boss, and I pointed to Johnny, and he's going to be preaching a couple, in about two, three weeks here. And, but I, I do submit to him, and I do submit to my task force because they are my leaders. But that's kind of stepping out of the context of Ephesians because Ephesians, he's dealing with the household and he moves on to children and parents. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. That word obey is, is, is very similar to the word submit. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 3, they're used interchangeably. They're synonyms. Children are called to submit as well. They're called to go under, subordinate to their parents. For this is right. And then he takes him back to the fifth command, honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment, which, which had a promise that you may live long in the land, remember? That it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Well, he says it right there. Sorry, verse 3. But then verse 4, fathers. Now, in each case, he says, okay, he's speaking to the children who are part of the church. They are equal in the sight of God. They have the same value, the same dignity as the parents. They are part of the oneness of the church. And yet there is, so, so that society functions, there's this leader and follower. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And I, I failed here too. I wish he would have spoke to moms, but he didn't. Well, how many times have I disciplined harshly? Or how many times have I provoked them to anger? God forgive me. But by God's grace, thankfully, God is, is revealing, opening his eyes, and he's helping me take off those, those, those old clothes and put on those new clothes. And I often go, you know what? I think the younger kids are better off than the older kids because the older kids are kind of the guinea pigs. Now, the younger kids probably wouldn't agree with that, but. And then he goes on to slaves and, and their masters. What is this doing in the Bible? But again, 
let's not simply throw the book out or, or stand as an authority over the book. Let's listen to what the Apostle Paul says. Slaves, bondservants, obey your earthly master with fear and trembling. First century would have went, yes, good word, Paul. Stop listening right there. 21st century goes, Paul, you're out of, uh, you're, you're out of context. You're, you're, you're causing problems. That shouldn't be in the text. You see what's going on? But he's speaking to slaves, bond servants, and with a sincere heart as you would Christ. To slaves, obey your masters as you would Christ. Oh, my goodness. How do you do that without the Spirit? How do you do that without gas in the tank? Not by the way of eye services, people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. You've probably worked with people who they are in tip-top shape when the boss is around. But as soon as the boss is out of sight, you're doing all the work. That can't be us as Christians. Rendering service, verse 7, with, with, a, with, with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. And so the slave is actually to serve his master, not as if he's serving his master, but looking beyond his master and saying, I'm serving the Lord. I'm doing this for my Lord. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. Understanding that there is reward. Whether he's a bondservant or is free. And so this is speaking to us as well. Then he turns around and he says, Masters, do the same to them. You see what Paul just has done? The Apostle Paul does not speak out against slavery of the day. We don't totally know why, but we do need to understand some things. Slavery in the day, there was probably 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. It's kind of the way the wheels were greased. The slavery of the day was not the slavery of the African-American slavery. I think it still was wrong. It was a different type of slavery. You could have been a doctor and been a slave. You could have owned land and still been a slave. And you had the possibility of earning your freedom. It was in that context that, that, it, that it wasn't a race-based slavery. There was people from all kinds of races that were slaves. We also need to understand that the Apostle Paul and they were not living in a society that was democratic where we could actually speak out. And you need to understand that the church, particularly at this time, was incredibly weak. And the Apostle Paul was not ashamed to speak out against things that were wrong. But this was not his higher priority. But what I want you to notice is what Paul does here is he actually begins to take out the very underpinnings of slavery. He says in verse 9, Masters, do the same to them. Did you hear that? 
He puts them on the same level. He speaks of equality between the slave and the slave owner. There would have been nowhere in the first century that the two would have been seen as equal, except the church. Yes, there was a hierarchy or a subordination, but there was an equality. Look at verse 9. And stop threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. Don't treat them badly because you know you will be judged for that. And he speaks of not only equality but justice. <laughs> and then he goes on, and there is no partiality with them. Onesimus, the, the, the story in Philemon where, where Paul is writing and sending a letter back to Philemon, the slave owner, about Onesimus who ran away. But after he ran away, he came in contact with Paul, becomes a believer. And Paul says, accept him as your brother. That's happening in the context of the church. There's no partiality between the two. And yet, Paul says to the slave, obey your earthly master. And all of that through the lens of what Jesus has done for us. My challenge to each of us is, I mean, I struggle with this passage myself. But continue to wrestle with it. Continue to allow it to seep in. Allow it to, allow it to. You know when you when you when you get a, a big scar and you jump into the tub and 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 you let the water, it stings, right? But that stinging actually cleanses us. It changes us. It, it transforms us. That's what the text of God's word is supposed to do for us. Uh, what 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 the apostle Paul is doing here with husbands and wives would transform marriages. We live in a world where marriages are broken. Oh, it would be good to hear from him. We live in a world where the relationships between, between uh, uh, employers and employees are so broken. Oh, if we would function like this. Children and parents. Oh, if we would function like this. This is not going back to the 50s. This is going back to what God has said. And all of that in the light of what Christ has done. Now we dealt with husbands and wives. We dealt with children and parents. We dealt with slaves and masters. But these things are also true for your relationships that are outside of that sphere. As you consider what Jesus has done, how he humbled himself and became a servant to the very point of death, allowing his body to be beaten and placed upon a cross, allowing his blood to be shed when he could have stopped the whole thing so that we might have forgiveness of sins. And he did this not because we were good or we had something great to offer him. He just did this because. And in doing so, he adopts us as his sons. He gives us this inheritance, as we said in Ephesians chapter 1. And in light of that, that's how we ought to treat each other in our household, 
in our churches, in our workplaces. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters as you would Christ. And masters, do the same to them. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Let's pray. And Father, again, I thank you for your book. Father, it starts with Elroy. The areas that I need to put off the old clothes... Would you help me to put them off and put on the new clothes? And may the result of my study in this text and hearing from you and, and, and causing my eyes to look at what you've done upon the cross, may it change the way I love my wife and my children. Father, I pray you do the same for each of us. Lord, I thank you for saying the hard things as well as the good things and understanding that both of them are good. Lord, would you change us for your glory? In your name we pray.